Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for the privilege of being able to look into your word this morning. Father, we pray that you speak to us through what's there. Father, pray that you change us as we meet with the Lord Jesus in his word. We ask it in his name. Amen. What stops you from getting to sleep at night? I'm not talking about lights outside or anything like that, but what do you think about as you try and go to sleep that sort of keeps you up? I guess I'm really asking what scares you, what worries you, but not, not like spiders and clowns or snakes or whatever you're scared of in that way. But the big things in life, the things that weigh on our minds, things that cause us to fret and fear about the future. Even though our answers may vary, I think, to a degree across the room, depending on our age and circumstances, I imagine many of the same things would arise, wouldn't they? We can be fearful about our health. We can be fearful about our family and their well-being. We can be fearful about jobs or our studies. We can be fearful about the future in general, just the unknown. What lies ahead that we don't know. Well, our passage today has two people who are very much in fear. A father with a very poorly daughter, close to death. And an ill woman left with almost no hope, unhelped by doctors and getting worse. They really have much to fear in their lives. I imagine that that stopped them from getting to sleep, fearful of what lie ahead. But this morning, as we look at our passage, we're going to see they're going to meet the Lord Jesus. And that is going to change. They're going to meet with him as he addresses their fears about the future. But as we've been seeing in Mark's Gospel, Mark is writing not just to tell us what happened, but also with an eye to the reader. Mark has put this account together carefully, not just to tell us what happened, but also to address things like our fears, our own worries about the future, those things that keep us up at night. So as we look at this account of these two people, let's keep in mind uh, that this is written for us and for our help and for our benefit. So we meet with two people, that's our first point, we have a desperate dad and a wounded woman. Let me read to you verses 21 to 25 again. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd, cloud, sorry, crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, but was no, getting no better, but rather grew worse. Jesus here is returning from Gentile country, from the non-Jewish area that we met last week. But as with his visit to the Gerasenes over there, again he's greeted by a man coming up to him straight away and falling at his feet. But this man could not be more different from the nameless, demon-possessed strongman from last week. Here is the respectable leader of a local synagogue, Jairus. He would look completely different. He'd probably be well-dressed. You can imagine that he would look very different from the other man. But he's not as needy. His little daughter is unwell, at the point of death. His young child is at death's door, and he needs Jesus' help immediately. If she's to be made well. We're not told of the child's condition. 
It's possible they didn't even really know what the child's condition was. There were no blood tests or sort of diagnostic medicine in those days. Often it was hard to tell if something was life-threatening or, or just trivial until the last few hours or the last few days, as you suddenly realise that this person's not going to get better. And that's where this father is. He's right at the very end. He's in the last few hours of his daughter's life. He knows now that this is very, very serious. Even if we don't have kids, I think we can imagine the desperation and the urgency of this man. He's heard about Jesus. He believes that Jesus can heal her. He just needs to get Jesus to the house. He just needs to get her there. Lay his hands on her and he believes that this poor child will survive. And that's what he does. He asks Jesus to help his daughter. Now in the Gospels, Jesus very rarely refuses a request like this. Jesus is one of pure compassion. He does not delight in the suffering of this little girl. Jesus, if you notice in the Gospels, does not use his power for party tricks or just to sort of show off. He uses it to help those in genuine need. And that's what he does with this little girl. So he goes off with the man to his house where his daughter lays ill and dying. But someone else meets Jesus on the way. Someone else who is desperate to meet Jesus. A woman who's endured great suffering. She had what our passage calls a discharge of blood. That was almost certainly a menstrual problem. Menstrual bleeding would mean that according to Old Testament law, she was classified as ceremonially unclean until the bleeding had stopped. That's not because periods are dirty or anything like that, but because blood in the Bible has to do with life, especially blood in this area. Any life fluids emitted from a woman or a man in the Old Testament would make them ceremonially unclean, for varying lengths of time depending on the reason. And there are actually specific commands given in the Old Testament for this particular situation. Her condition would mean that she was excluded from the grounds of the temple, from the religious life of the nation. Anything she touched would be considered unclean, and anyone who touched the things that she had touched would be considered unclean. Anyone whom she touched herself would be unclean. Now think about that for that woman and what that would mean for her life. That would make her a social outcast, excluded from the religious and social life of the nation. She wouldn't be able to mix freely with other people. She wouldn't be able to go to public places. And she'd been like that for 12 long years. 12 years in that condition. She could survive the bleeding, just about. But the social and spiritual implications were huge for her life. She needed to be cured. Now there are several conditions that she may have had, but all of them were untreatable at the time. That hadn't stopped her trying though. Perhaps at one point she'd been a woman of some means, but all her money had been spent on doctors. And their primitive medicine, well, it only made her condition worse rather than better. Doubtless in many moments she felt that she was without hope. She had no more money for doctors, and it seemed like no doctor could help her anyway. So here we have two people in desperate need. Different ends of the social strata, different genders, different circumstances. One who'd suffered for 12 years, one who only has a 12-year-old daughter. But both fearing the future, 
both not knowing what lie ahead, and both coming to Jesus for help. Both of them knew that, humanly speaking, their situations were hopeless. Jairus had no time, and the woman had tried everything that she could possibly think of. Both situations, they can't make themselves well. When it talks about being made well in this passage, actually, the word literally there is to be saved. So the same one that you meet elsewhere in the Gospels, where people are saved. What we see here is that they can't save themselves. They need Jesus to save them. And that matches with our situation, doesn't it? We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. We can't earn our way to heaven. And so, like them, we come to Jesus. Jesus can save us. And that's what he does with these two people. And so our next point. An outcast brought in and a dead girl raised up. Have a look at verses 36 to, sorry, 26 to 29. And she had suffered under many positions and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The woman with the discharge of blood reasons that if she can just touch Jesus' clothes, she'll be healed. She's heard about what Jesus can do. She's heard about other people who have met with Jesus. And she really believes that that will be enough. Now this was a risky ploy for this woman. Remember, she's ceremonially unclean. She was not really supposed to be out and about. Anything and anyone she touched would be unclean. And a bustling crowd, in that sense, was a dangerous place. But she comes up behind Jesus. She touches his clothes. And immediately she knows that she's been made well. She feels in her body that she's been healed. It's amazing, isn't it, what 12 years of doctors, medicines and treatments could not do is achieved in an instant by a mere touch of Jesus' clothes. And the woman is well again. Again, that Greek word is saved. She's been saved. She's been rescued by Jesus. You think, oh great, end of the story. But Jesus knows what's happened. She's taken a risk here. If she wasn't healed, then Jesus actually would have been made unclean by him, by her touching his clothes. Remember anything that you touch and then it touches someone else. The amazing thing in our passage is that Jesus' goodness, Jesus' healing is more contagious than her uncleanness. Actually, he makes her clean. He makes her well, rather than it being the other way around. And Jesus knows that this has happened. Even in the midst of a crowd cajoling him and people pressing all about him, he knows that something has happened. And he turns to the crowd and he asks them, who touched my garment? Do you notice that Jesus knows exactly what's happened? His disciples turn back to him and say, how can you say who touched me? Jesus didn't say that. He said, who touched my garment? Who touched my clothes? Jesus knows exactly what's happened. He knows that it was touching the clothes that did this. Well, the woman comes forward in fear and trembling. She falls at his feet like Jairus, unlike the demon-possessed man before him. What's Jesus going to do? 
rebuke her, undo her healing. After all, she didn't even ask, she didn't speak to him before she was healed. Well, let's see what happens. Have a look down at our passage, uh, verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What does Jesus do? He calls her daughter. That's how it starts. Daughter. To the world, she was a social outcast. Unclean, uncurable. But to Jesus, she's family. He calls her daughter. She's the only woman Jesus refers to as daughter in all the Gospels. Not only is she welcomed back into the life of the nation, she's welcomed into the family of God. She's restored. And it happens through faith. We'll come to that in a minute. But she is brought back. She is saved. She's rescued. And she's brought into Jesus' family. But while this has been happening, someone else has been standing by not quite so sure what's going on. There's been an anxious parent standing by. Okay, Jesus is talking here about his daughter, this woman. What about this guy's daughter? What about my daughter? You can imagine the thoughts in his head, can't you? Come on. Why did you have to stop and talk to this woman? This wasn't even an urgent case. She's been ill for 12 years. My daughter's case is urgent. If you don't hurry up, she's going to die. But it turns out, it would seem, it was too late. Someone comes from his house with some bad news. Have a look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, uh, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Seems like it's too late. His daughter has died. So the reasoning is, well, there's no point in bothering Jesus now. There's nothing that Jesus can do now. But Jesus overhears this exchange. He takes his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James and John, and goes to Jairus and goes to his house. When he arrives there, there's weeping and wailing. Now, I can imagine after the death of a young child, there's much weeping and wailing in a house. But in the Middle East, they actually do this even more. There are actually people sometimes you could hire to come and do that. They really put the raw emotion on display. I think as Brits, we tend to sort of hold ourselves back a little bit, don't we? But here is raw emotion on display. And Jesus comes and asks, why all the commotion? Now stop and think about that for a second. He knows, and they know, the child has died. You can imagine the thoughts in theirs, can't you? Um, Jesus, why the commotion? There's a dead child in there. Now, if Jesus wasn't supremely confident that he was able to help and able to do what he was about to do, then this would not be a very nice thing to say, would it? The next thing he says is that your child is not dead, she's asleep. Again, think about this. You can't turn up to a funeral and make claims like that unless you know that you can do something. Jesus goes in the house with the father and the mother and his three core disciples. He puts everyone else outside. Then he takes the dead girl's hand and says, Talitha, kumi, little girl, maybe even little lamb, if you look at the original languages, little lamb, get up. 
Now, we don't know the tone of voice, but the way he does it, well, it, it's almost as though he's waking her up from sleep, isn't it? That's how he's described what's happening. The Greek word which Mark translates uh, for get up is the same word that's used in uh, the previous chapter from waking up from sleep, when Jesus is asleep in the boat. It's the same word Jesus uses the paralytic in chapter 2. Get up, take your mat and walk. It's almost, you know, get up, wake up, rise and shine. Jesus wakes a corpse from death as easily as you or I would wake a child from sleep. And we see here that resurrection is not hard for Jesus. There's no elaborate rituals, there's no incantations, no crazy quests that you've got to go on to find something, or, or magic spells like you get in all those fantasy books. He merely speaks, and the girl rises. He brings her back to life so easily as though he's waking her from sleep. And that speaks into our situation, doesn't it? One of the most common things that people are scared of is death. Are we scared of death, that moment when everything earthly stops? We see here that Jesus can raise us with a mere word. He can bring us back to life in the mere twinkling of an eye. And Jesus has promised that one day all believers will be raised to new life. It says this in John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up. On the last day. You see the Christian's hope is not heaven. With God but without a body. Heaven is a wonderful waiting room. Until our real hope. Resurrection. That's the Christian's real hope that we look forward to. And it's assured here. We see it that Jesus can raise someone with no problem whatsoever. We see the ease with which he does it. Death in the Bible for Christians after this is always turned to sleep. And one day we will awaken, our spirits reunited with our body. We see a glimpse of it here with this young girl. Jesus heals a woman and he raises a child. He shows us his immense power, his ability to do that, so that we need to fear those things. I mean, he's barely got off the boat, has he? He's barely done anything. But Mark has put this here, not just to record the accounts, but to speak to us. And if we believe what it says here, we're, we're presented with a choice, and that's our final point. Choice, fear or faith. The accounts that are placed here for us highlight several different things. We've touched briefly on the way they offer us a glimpse of what is to come for believers. A world without sickness, uncleanness and death. We touched briefly on the way that Jesus cares for every strata of society, from the marginalised woman to the leader of the synagogue. But what Mark wants us to focus on is the response that we see. Mark carefully weaves together these accounts and shows us responses of fear and faith, alarm and belief. Look at verses 33 and 34 again. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace, and be healed of your disease. And then look down at verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. That word believe though, is the same word as faith, which is 
We put it in different ways in English. It's not the first time in Mark that this has happened either. Just in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 4 verse 40, after the calming of the storm, or during the calming of the storm, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Mark puts those ideas of fear and faith together with a point. He wants to show us that we have a choice. We can have fear, or we can have faith. Faith is putting our trust in something or someone. It's not as sometimes it's made out blatantly believing something that's irrational or being naive. Faith here isn't being contrasted with reason, it's being contrasted with fear. If you were this father or this this woman, wouldn't it be a rational thing to approach Jesus, who has a track record of healing people? Wouldn't that be a sensible, rational choice? They're not coming to Jesus because they've left their reason aside. They're coming to Jesus because based on what they've heard, they genuinely believe that he can help. They're putting their trust, their faith, in Jesus. Now it's important to say here though that faith in itself isn't special. It's not magical. You get some posters, you know, just believe. Or, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of the Lego movie, uh, our boys are a point. That's the poster in the, the Lego movie that they sort of look at. You know, believe. But the idea there is, well it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe it and all will be well. I remember Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey some years ago recording the soundtrack for the Prince of Egypt. The line goes, there can be miracles when you believe, though hope is frail, it's hard to kill. Who knows what miracles you can achieve when you believe somehow you will, you will when you believe. It never says, though, what you believe in. It's just this idea of if you believe it enough. But actually, that's foolishness. Surely believing a miracle can happen won't make it happen. I've heard it said of the woman in our passage that, you know, when Jesus says your faith has made you well, it's as though it's some sort of uh, faith in herself that has healed her. Some sort of psychosomatic healing, a sort of placebo effect. Now that can happen sometimes in medicine. The mind and the body are more connected than we think. But that's not what happens here. And it's not what Jesus means here. How do we know? Because it says in verse 30 that Jesus knows that power has left him. He knows that it happened by someone touching his garments. And he knows that power has gone from him. If this was psychosomatic, or if it was just the power of the mind, why would power leave Jesus? That would be power of mind over matter, not power of Jesus. And did she not really believe that the doctors could heal her before that, that they would have made her well? No, when Jesus says here that her faith has made her well, it's shorthand. It's Jesus that has made her well, but the way that he's done it is through faith, through trust. And that's an important distinction to make here. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about our attitude to him. Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust him in the face of things that might make us fear? Suffering like the woman. The death of a loved one like Jairus. Even our own death like the disciples in the storm in the previous chapter. These are big things, aren't they, that we face in our lives. And these kind of situations can lead us to fear. <clears throat> but Jesus wants to encourage us through these accounts not to fear, but to trust, to believe, to have faith 
in him. Not because faith is special, but because Jesus is special. Faith is what connects us to Jesus. Faith is what grasps hold of what Jesus offers and himself. So instead of having confidence in ourselves or having confidence in confidence, I've been watching Sound of Music last week, we have confidence in Christ. Faith is coming with empty hands and asking Jesus to fill them. Faith comes to Jesus with something we cannot do for ourselves. And as we said before, the classic example is our salvation. That's why we're saved, same word as is used here, by faith alone. Because like these two, we cannot save ourselves. So we're not saved by trying harder or being nicer or doing more. We're saved by coming to Jesus with empty hands and asking Jesus to save us. And that confidence, that faith in Jesus, casts out fear. It's not naivety or gullibility. If it were, then the woman would still be ill and the child would still be dead. Remember that next time somebody rolls their eyes at you when you say that you're a Christian. Instead, it is grasping hold of Christ, who he is, and all that he achieved on the cross. It's trusting him that he does care, that he can help. So often as believers, I think we can ask like the woman, almost feeling embarrassed that we need help. Fearing an unkind response to our request, as though we're sort of bothering him too much, as though he doesn't have time for us. But like the woman in the passage, if we are Christ, we are his sons and daughters. And Jesus always has time for his sons and daughters. He cares about our fears. He cares about those things that keep us up at night. And he shows his care here to these people. So we have a choice. We can continue to fear and to fret, or we can listen to Jesus. Do not fear, only believe, keep believing, keep trusting. And on those sleepless nights, we can preach this to ourselves, when our minds are awash with fears about the future, about family, about sickness, about death, or whatever it is that's bothering us. We can preach to ourselves, have confidence in Christ, the powerful one, the risen one who cares. We have no reason to fear those things, not because they're not scary, but because Christ is bigger. Christ has it all in hand, and Christ can even raise the dead, if need be. So let's pray that this week, when fear lifts its nasty head, we choose to trust in Christ instead. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your Son into the world. Father, thank you. That the Lord Jesus was not only powerful, but that, Father, he cared, he had compassion on these people. And, Father, we pray that as we face fears, as we face things that would shake our faith, help us to keep trusting in you. Help us to keep trusting in Christ and all that he has achieved for us on the cross. And keep us going, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.